Welcome to LOA Today. Walt Thiessen and Life Coach Wendy Dillard here. Today is Tuesday, January 23rd, 2018, 4 p.m. Eastern Time, our second daily dose of happy for the day. And uh, I have to say, Wendy, I've been having a good day. It's been a challenging day, but a good day because I've been practicing really hard. Every time I go to my next activity, making sure I'm in alignment. And I, I haven't done it every time, but I've done it a higher percentage of the time. And that was really important today because there's a, the main project I was working on today is something that it's basically uh, a project I'll be managing to have some software built for my wife's gardening business. And it requires intensive concentration. So I really needed to get myself in alignment. And I did. I mean, I made a lot of progress on it. So this is a good day. Well, good for you for, like, being purposeful about wanting to get yourself in alignment and paying attention before you moved on to each segment of your day. That's, that's an awesome, awesome thing to do. Well, thank you. I mean, I've, I've been trying to do it. I can't say I've been really successful at it, but I'm getting a little bit better and a little bit better, which, of course, is you know, what we can hope for. We want progress every day. And, and if I can get it to the point where I can do it before I do everything, I'll be really happy with that because, I mean, it's so easy. You're switching from one task to the next throughout the day, and you don't even think about it. And I'm trying to retrain my brain. Okay, whoops, stop. I'm starting a new task here, time to realign. And I, I'd say I, I'm not really doing it a high percentage of the time, but I'm up to like 20%, so that's, that's pretty good compared to where I was. You know, I would call that successful. It is. Because the way law of attraction works is everything's done in baby steps. That's mm-hmm. how you make um, sustainable progress. Yep, absolutely. So, so this I'd is good progress. It, it is a success. It is a success. I don't mean to make it sound like it isn't, because it is. It's a big one. I mean, before I wasn't doing it at all. So. <laughs> There you go. This is definitely so where did that phrase come from? You said it twice. You know, like, well, I don't really call this a success yet. Like, come on, man. Did call I really say success. that? <laughs> did I really say that? I don't even remember saying that. Yeah, you did twice. Oh, boy. I okay. listened to you. <laughs> well, note to subconscious mind, ignore what I didn't remember saying at all because I really didn't mean to say it. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, then I'm certainly glad I brought it up so I can bring it to your attention. <laughs> It's amazing all the different ways that we are previously programmed that we're learning how to unprogram. I mean, this whole LOA adventure is just about that. It's about replacing the old programming. And just when you think you've got a whole bunch that's been replaced, something else pops up. It's like, where is this going to end? I mean, some point I'm going well, to run like out of programming. Say, if, it ends, if it ends, we're dead, right? Yeah, that's true, right? <laughs> you know, so, like, I'm glad it's not ending. <laughs> the, the, very good point. I like your point, yes. <laughs> so how's your day going? You've been having a good one? My day has been going good. Um, one of my favorite things to do is training or teaching, and um, we have a guy who just started yesterday, so I've been spending the last couple of days, you know, giving him intensive training, and that's always fun for me. I mean, this is where I feel like my job is just one of my favorite. This is the one of my favorite things to do is because I start out with, hey, let's get to know each other. You know, good. how many jobs do you have where you can go sit back, relax, and just be social. That's nice. You know, but that's what I do because I feel like if we get to know each other, then everything I say afterwards will just, you know, be received so much easier. So I, I, I've loved getting to know him. And um, his birthday is really close to mine, even the year of birth. And it's amazing how many things we have in common. Oh. That in itself is kind of fun. Yeah, you sure. Know, like he says, and da 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 I'm like, me too. And then I'll say something. He'll go, me too. <laughs> 
Well, that's really neat because and, that gives you yeah, a lot in and common. And then he talks about his wife, and I'm like, me too. And I'm like, oh, my God. We were all, like, born under the same star or something. It's really cool. That, that's very good. And it's also the basis for making a, a good working relationship because the more you have in common, obviously, the easier it is to find things in common, to find things to agree on, to find things that uh, you're both interested in. So it just exactly. makes the job so much easier. That's really good. Yeah. Would, I mean, wouldn't it be nice if we could always pick that? Every you know? day. I think it might um, start to wear on me, mm-hmm. but I do it every couple months, and so it's just kind of like an extra fun perk. You so, know, so you get your bi monthly dose of it, so to speak. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. I okay. mean, there's a lot of things I do that I do enjoy, and this is definitely one of the highlights. And and the sociability part, I mean, socializing is actually much more important than people realize. And believe it or not, that actually ties into our topic for the day. Because uh, I had previously mentioned how I was involved in founding an alternative school based on what's known as the Sudbury model. Um, we opened that school back in February 2002. And you mentioned you wanted to hear more about it because it sounded awfully mm-hmm. LOA. And you're right, it is LOA. Um, but the reason that I mentioned that it's close to, that it's very closely related to sociability is that, well, once you understand how the model works, you'll see why. Um, in this model, the student is completely responsible for everything that happens during the day and has complete con- control over what the student does all day long. So it's probably not going to be a surprise to you that a large portion of what the kids do every day is to socialize. Socializing becomes actually a huge part of the day, and it, it pretty much dominates the day. Now, they do other activities, too. I mean, there's only so much talking you can do just sitting around and talking, but socializing becomes gigantic in the, in the Sudbury model. And it turns out that it plays an extremely important role from an educational perspective, a role that, uh, since the school was first founded, the first Sudbury school was founded in Framingham, Massachusetts in the late 1960s. And since that school was founded, um, a lot has been developed, of course, in the realm of positive psychology and general educational understanding and so forth. Um, and, and all that information that has come along since then has reinforced what this particular school um, was able to prove through its example. Um, so to give you an idea, let's say you have a bunch of kids and they're, they're socializing about this, that, and the other thing. Now, one thing that you have to understand is that there are no core requirements. So it's not like it's all about reading, writing, arithmetic because the kids don't have to do that if they don't want to, which can be you know rather... Um, uh, ulcer creating for the parents, shall we say? <laughs> well, but I mean, is there any kind of structure? The only structure is whatever the kids decide there's going to be. And that's where the ulcer creating comes in because, you know, this is something where a parent has to really buy into the concept before they're even going to consider sending their kid to this kind of school because this is like way, way out there, right? The idea that so, the kid, but, the, ki- the inmates are in charge. How, oh my but, God. <laughs> but how does a kid even initiate an interest in something and then have somebody available to teach it to them? Or is that not at all how it works? That, that's what's so intriguing about it. Because, and this is where the socializing comes in, it turns out that, for instance, with reading, learning to read, every kid who goes through a subway school will at some point between the moment they enter the school, I believe the earliest you can get in is age five, up until age 12, somewhere during that time, they will learn to read. The tricky part is, much of the time, no one knows when it happened. (laughs) I know, that sounds really weird. 
The reason for mm-hmm. it very often is because of the socializing. Once one kid learns learns how to do something through socializing, the other kids pick it up. So you you but, very often will see one kid teaching another kid how to read. So are there no actual teachers to teach those kinds of skills? There are staff members, but they are not teachers in a classroom where you go in and take attendance and they're all sitting in rows. It's not that kind of a school. It's it's much more of a relaxed, open format. And on those occasions where uh, kids run into something where they just don't know how to do whatever it is they're trying to learn, they'll ask a staff member, can you help us with this? And it may be something where the staff member can just give them some quick advice or it may be something where they actually need to study something more intensively and, and they'll actually negotiate, well, let's see, how many days do you want to work on this? We got. We should probably work on this for like a total of you know, 20, 25 days and you should have some time to practice with it. And so they'll work out like a schedule and, and they'll, they'll actually make a little contract. Like uh, the kids agree they're going to show up, do the work, and the teacher's going to be there to do the stuff and so forth. And And that's basically how they approach classes. Now, most classes don't last for months at a time. Um, to give you an example, every once in a while you'll get a group of kids who will want to like raise some money for an activity. You know, this will have, they want to have a bake sale or something. And now all of a sudden they have to deal with money issues, which means they have to deal with numbers. And then all of a sudden they realize, I gotta learn some, uh, some arithmetic. I gotta learn some math. And so a bunch of the kids will get together, go to one of the staff members, negotiate with them, and then they'll start learning math. And it turns out that because the kids are initiating learning how to do the math, they will learn the first six years of math in about 10 weeks. Okay. So now I get that part, but the part I'm still not quite catching on to is, so if the kids decide they want a bake sale, they have to learn about numbers. Who teaches them math for the next 10 weeks? Well, like I said, in that case, they approach one of the staff members and say, we want to learn how to do math. Will you teach us? And And is there... Like someone who knows how to teach math, you know, as in like from one step to an X to the next, or is it just arbitrary? It's, I mean, the staff members are usually fairly well-educated people. Um, usually what happens is there are math texts around that, that the kids can get their hands on, and so they'll work through the math texts with the adult, hmm. and the adult will okay. help answer questions and help them figure out what's going on. But But literally the kids usually end up leading the way. It's not so much... A teacher-led thing. It's more of a student-led thing because. The, the but like once once the kid's interested, there are textbooks or things that have a structure in how to teach. Oh sure, kid. yeah. Okay, okay. That in was fact, the, the most part po- that I'm like, where does the information come from? <laughs> in fact, the most popular way is not to use the texts that get handed out to kids in public schools, but to use the teachers' texts that have the answers in the back, so that they can do the work and check the answer, do the work and check the answer, and work their way through that way. Interestingly enough. Oh, now, so, like, what got you involved in, in helping to set up a school like this? Well, it's a long story, but the bottom line is I had long had many, many concerns about the way public education is structured. Um, I had been through it personally, of course. I had seen the results with people I knew who, I, who went through the system like I did. Um, I was struck, for instance, on graduation day, how many people had no idea what they wanted to do with their lives. And I'm thinking, the school system had these kids for 12 years plus plus kindergarten and pre-K, and the kid still doesn't know what they want to do with their life. What's wrong with this picture? And yet, that is the experience of virtually every high school in America, and probably around the world, too. Yeah, I kind of remember feeling um, a level of pressure 
yeah. mid to late high school, like, okay, you need to make a big lifetime decision. I'm like, really? Um, I don't get it. And what's you really know? bad I is... Did, I, didn't ha- I didn't have parents that, like, were big into, like, oh, you need to go to college or do certain things. It was kind of like whatever you want to do. But all of a sudden I started hearing other peers talking about that, and I, I didn't really know what to do with it. And there are a lot of kids who are pressured to go on to college, and so their answer is going to be, well, I'm going to go on to college. But if you further press them on what they're going to do, what kind of major they're, they're going to have, even there, most of the time they don't know. Oh, I'm going to figure out my major next year. You know, I, I haven't decided what I'm going to do. I don't know what I'm going to study. They have no idea. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's the biggest indictment of the public school system, whereas in a Sudbury school, because of all the socializing they're doing and because every step of the way they're in control of their own lives, they're constantly experimenting with stuff. You know, it, it can drive the adults crazy, but a kid will, will start trying something and decide, no, that's not for him, and they'll go to the next thing. He'll try that. Oh, that's not for me. Goes to the next thing. Goes on to the next thing. Loves it. Does it for months at a time. Then loses interest and goes on to the next thing. So they're constantly moving from one thing to the next. Some of them are academic. Some are non-academic. Some are just playing game playing. But they're just moving, 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 moving. And what they're doing in that process is they're learning what they want to do with their lives. They're learning through just direct interaction, and they're learning something that public school kids never get during public school, and that is how to have confidence in their own decision-making. That's fascinating. Yeah, it's very fascinating. Wow. Now, when you're talking to a, um, a parent about this, you know, about prospectively sending their kid to a school like this, you can imagine the questions that arise um, because, I mean, virtually all of the typical traditional um, paraphernalia you'd associate with schools aren't there. There, there is no curricula. There, um, there are no official diplomas. The schools aren't even accredited. <laughs> you know, how the head the kid? How does a kid going to get into college? He doesn't even have grades. <laughs> what, what is I mean, he going to do when he wants to go to college? Oh my God, this is a catastrophe. <laughs> do, do the kids get GEDs? It depends. It, it depends what they want to do. If they want to go on to college, they'll yeah they'll tend to go to GED and they'll probably also uh, learn how to take the SATs. And the ones who want to get in, they actually have no problem, believe it or not. In fact, they're usually more successful than their public school peers. And there are a couple of reasons for that. First of all, when they study for the SATs, they study to the test. They don't bother with all the craziness that gets taught in the in the classrooms. They're only interested in, in passing the test. So they just learn like crazy all the stuff that's going to be on the test, and they do very well. Um, when it comes to actually getting interviewed, you know, getting invited in for the school interview to get a chance to get accepted mm-hmm. into the school, <laughs> this is where some of the more fascinating stories come from. Because what's the traditional approach, right? The traditional approach is uh, you, you, you visit, you know, three, four, five, six campuses, whatever. You pick the ones that you want to apply to. You, you get the application forms. You fill out the essay. You supply you know, your, what's, what, what resume you have. Um, you, you supply a description about all the activities you did in school, what your grades were. Um, you, you put this whole package, this academic package together, right, and then you ship it off to the schools and you wait for an answer. The approach that the Sudbury School student takes couldn't be further from that. <laughs> Okay. The, the Sudbury School student, first of all, they know why they're going to the school. They don't bother to apply unless they want to go to the school and they have a reason why. So unlike most of the kids coming out of the public schools, they know exactly what they're going for. They know what they want to study. They know, what, they know which school they want to go to, and they're bound to determine they're going to get into it. And, in fact, the, the Sudbury Valley School, the one in Framingham, has put out a bunch of materials, including some books. And, and one of those books, the, the book starts off, with a tale of how one girl got into a college. She 
um, had she, she had basically graduated from the Sudbury School. Um, she knew what she wanted to do, and one of the staff members suggested that she check out a school here in Connecticut, where I am. It's actually fairly nearby where we are. It's called Wesleyan University. And so she instantly went to check out Wesleyan, found out the, the, the program that she was looking for, looked at it, said, yep, exactly what, what I want, and she went to apply, and the applications office said, um, we're sorry, but the applications period is closed. So she got on the phone next day, and she called in and says, hi, I want to apply to go to the school. And the person she spoke to in the admissions office said, oh, you're the one I spoke to yesterday. Well, I, I told you the application period is closed. So the next day she got on the phone and said, hi, I want to go to your school. And this, the person laughed and said, well, like I said, the last two days, the application period is over. So the next day she gets on the phone and says, hi, I want to go to your school. <laughs> <laughs> I'm seeing a pattern. <laughs> about a month later, the dean of admissions hears about this and says, who's that? <laughs> oh, she calls every day, but, you know, the application period is over. He says, well, get her in her for an interview. You don't have any time in your schedule. You're booked. Well, just shoot her in for 15 minutes. I'm, I want to hear what this girl has to say. So they shoot wow. her in for 15 minutes. She comes in with her mother for the meeting, goes in for the 15-minute meeting. An hour later, the two of them come out arm in arm. The dean of admissions goes over to the mother and says, this school is perfect for your daughter. I hope she applies to go here because we're going to accept her. That's how a Sudbury, school gets in, a Sudbury student gets into the college of their choice. Now, can you yes, honestly tell me that there isn't a school on the face of the planet that would not want to talk to a student like that? No, I can't. I mean, I can't. That's absolutely amazing. Now, how many public school students do you think know even to try doing something like that? I can't. I mean, I'll tell you, from my very public, you know, school upbringing and how I was raised in my community, I would say if I tried twice and got told no, I'd be done. Yeah. I didn't wait for twice. Yeah. I was done after one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, probably after one, but if I was really determined, I might shoot for two. Yeah. But I can't imagine going after that. I mean, that that kind of a uh, little bit reminds me of the story of, you know, uh, the Kentucky Fried Chicken guy, um, Colonel Sanders, you know, how he, the po you know, who knows, folklore could change. Um, a story, but, you know, folklore says that he got turned down a thousand times um, for, I don't know, not for a job. Or, I think it was what he was trying to sell his, his recipe. Yeah, he was trying to, to, yeah, he was to, trying sell, his to sell his recipe and yeah. got turned down a thousand times. Yeah. You know, and, and of course, the moral of that story is who on earth would even think <laughs> to keep knocking on doors after you've been turned down once, twice, or three times, let right. alone a thousand. Exactly. So my curiosity is how real is that number of a thousand? <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, they say but, Edison had 10,000 failures with a light bulb. Did he actually have 10,000? I don't know, but it's a good story. <laughs> who knows? I can't tell you. What I do know is that when you come through a subway school, you develop so much more personal confidence than your public school counterpart could ever possibly hope for. And you have so many different opportunities to try things out and to talk about things with your friends and to try more things out and to play some games and try more things out and just do things that you know the, drive the adults up through the wall. But because you have that kind of freedom, you get to do something that you, know, you and I have talked about a lot on the show. Wouldn't it be great if we could actually follow our what I call the built-in compass, what Abraham calls connecting to your inner being. What if you can just follow what your inner being messages say? 
and you could do it right from the youngest age. That's what a Sudbury School kid does. They're they're able to stay connected because they're not being dragged apart like the the public school does to them. Well, you know the phrase, when the student is ready, the teacher uh, appears? Right. Well, I I totally believe in that concept. Um, Abraham oftentimes talks about, you know, people's readiness level and that there's no point in trying to tell somebody something if they're not asking the question. Because if they're not asking the question, they're not open to hearing the answer. That's right. And really then it's just that information is falling on deaf ears. And what I've learned for me is the more information falls on deaf ears, even when a person starts to care about that subject, they will have already had so much resistance built up, they may not go that down, down that road anyway. And that just is precisely somebody. That is precisely why kids hate math or reading or science or social studies because literally it has been spoon fed to them it's been shoved down their throats mm-hmm. plus there's also a, a nice little argument i used to like when i was trying to recruit parents for the the school that we ultimately opened i said when was the last time you solved a quadri- quadratic equation Maybe I should take a step back. I have had that question myself. (laughs) Why did I learn that? (laughs) Maybe I should step back and ask, do you remember what a quadratic equation is? (laughs) No, I really don't. And I remember I was really good at them because I love math. (laughs) But, you know, I got through calculus and went, okay, I think I'm going to be going into fashion design. (laughs) And I just have a hard time seeing how this is going to apply, even though I was good at it. So I think I'm done with this math thing. So I guess the next question becomes, when was the last time you read a complete Shakespearean play and analyzed it? Okay, let's first ask Wendy, when was the first time she ever did that? (laughs) The answer would be never. (laughs) You obviously went to one of the deprived public schools. (laughs) It was not one of the electives I went to. That's right. Oh, I mean, you look at the stuff that's required of somebody in order to get their diploma from high school and then ask yourself, how much of it do they actually use after graduation? And it's somewhere between nil and zero. I mean, so little of it gets used. I mean, not none. That's probably an exaggeration. But so little mm-hmm. of it gets used. And you think about 12 years, 12 years, and that's the best that the public school system can produce. They, they can produce somebody who can, well, in some cases, solve a quadratic equation. In other cases, they don't even know what that means. Um, but in most cases, they can't balance a checkbook. Right. Like, what? <laughs> I mean, I learned how to balance a checkbook from my dad because he did accounting. That was his thing. And I used to love to watch him um, when he was doing our bills. And the fact that he didn't look at the adding machine, but he was like looking at the piece of paper while his fingers were going. I went, that is a skill I want. And so, yes, I I am fabulous at 10 key by touch, and I learned how to do that really early on Mm -hmm. because that looked exciting. Yeah. You know, and I like to balance a checkbook. That was a fun thing for me, Mm -hmm. but I didn't learn it in school. I learned it because I watched my dad do it, and I would, you know, like look over his shoulder and go, can you show me how? And, and then by, he did, and then I'm like, oh, this is so cool. 
And, and by the way, uh, if listeners are enjoying the podcast, I just want to remind you to take a moment and send a message to your friend because we're trying to pass the word to as many people as possible that they can get their daily dose of happy. And, and this is a, an interesting and unique daily dose of happy we're giving out today. So just take a moment and send a, a Facebook message or something to, to a friend and tell them, hey, you got to check this show out. But um, And, you know, if anybody listening doesn't think that this is a law of attraction topic, when you really pay attention to what we're talking about, it has everything to do with law of attraction. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Everything. Because, you know, law of attraction is like attracts like. And so if you're trying to teach somebody something that they are not interested in, like, at all, then there's no matching quality for the universe to do. That's right. And on the contrary, if somebody is interested in something, that's where their attention is focused then the law of attraction is going to bring something that's like it into their existence. And so if they want to do something, boom, whatever it is will show up for them. So this is a total law of attraction conversation. We're just not talking about it in the same natural way that we would. Right. So keep going, Walt. This is fun. <laughs> <laughs> now, to kind of verify the whole model independently, um, there's another story I can tell. This one is about an Indian educator named... I think his name is Sanjay Gupta. I may have the name wrong, but I think that's it. And he ha- he was also very much of an outdoor, out there educational experimenter. And he came up with a really interesting experiment approximately, I want to say, 20 years ago. I don't remember exactly. You can find his video on YouTube. It's a great video. There's also a TED Talk. It's really fascinating. But uh, Dr. Gupta decided to take... A computer, yeah, this must have been back in, in like the early days of the, the Internet, so late 90s, early 2000s, something like that. He took a, a, the equivalent of a desktop computer and had it specially created so that he could build it into the wall of a building on a street corner in one of the poorest suburbs of one of the poorest cities in India. It was in a neighborhood okay. where the kids didn't have school, most of the uh, the neighborhood was unemployed. They they didn't have anything, and they didn't speak English. The computer was programmed in English, and the computer was connected to the internet. And he left it there with uh, you know the equivalent of a mouse and, and keyboard that would be weather protected. And he just installed it and left it there for a year. He didn't give anybody instructions. He didn't tell anybody it was there. He just made sure it was low enough to the ground that little kids could interact with it. And then he went away for a year and came back later. And after that year, what he found was that the street kids who knew no English, who had no educational background, had taught each other how to use this computer and were using it to glean dramatic amounts of information and give themselves complete education from the internet wow so the question arises first of all how did they do that (laughs) and no one really knows for sure it's like anything else kids figure stuff out and then they teach each other what they figured out and it's like the way millennials picked up computers right how did millennials learn how to use computers well they just started to use them and then they showed each other, and they did it together. Oh, I think that you do this, and you do this, and gets that, and creates that. Oh, it makes that icon. It does this, and that's how they learned it, you know? So that's what they did. They just they pieced it together. They learned the best way possible, kids teaching kids. 
which is actually much better than an adult standing in front of a classroom giving out instructions. It's much more effective. Every study that's ever been done shows it's more effective. Okay, so there's aspect number one. Now, aspect number two is when he published this particular study showing what had happened, and, and the results were just absolutely phenomenally off the charts, he got a lot of pushback, as you might expect, from the educational establishment. So he was invited into uh, two or three different schools um, that were more forward-thinking, that were more not rigidly traditional, and allowed to do modified versions of his experiment in those schools. So what he did was he brought computers in, and he explained to the kids, okay, you can um, experiment and play with the, the computers all you want and teach each other and so forth. So kind of mimicking a lot of what happened in the street, but not as, you know, Wild West. He, he, he gave them some guidelines to work with because that satisfied the requirements of the schools. And they produced very much the same results. They were outproducing the control group, which was, you know, the other kids their same age who were in the, the, the traditional school classroom situations. They were outproducing them in terms of their ability to learn the, whatever curricula they were supposed to be learning. And each time that he replicated this test, no matter which way they configured it, the kids always outperformed the teacher-led classroom to the point where some of the schools started shutting him out of even discussion because it meant that the teacher was now obsolete. Mm. <laughs> now, if that doesn't blow your mind, nothing will. <laughs> you know, as you're talking, um, it's kind of like there's this expansiveness in my own thought process of even as an adult – because I certainly don't believe that learning ends just because we grow up. Right. But even as an adult, if we didn't have to pay the bills, and I know that's the big caveat. Sure. If we didn't have to pay the bills and we had no obligation to do anything specifically, how would we spend our time and I wonder what we would end up doing? Mm. Yeah. Because really, you know, what's happening with these kids is they're following their inner being. They're following their inner guidance. They're learning it at a very early yeah. age. And that inner guidance is leading them exactly to what they need to learn next. No teacher can replicate that. <laughs> you know, one of the things that I, I am aware of is I work well with, I call it block time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like some people will say, if you want to get an education as an adult while you're learning, I mean, while you're, go, you know, still working, you know, you do a little bit every night and you go to school in the evening. And that thing doesn't work well for me. And it really never has. I've tried that. Um, because I don't tend to do a little bit of something at a time. Mm. I like the full immersion yes. process. You know, and that's why everything I've ever learned, when I've learned it well, it was through the big immersion process where then I do it repetitively over and over and over until either I love it or I'm like, okay, I'm done. Mm -hmm. um, and so, like, I remember a number of years ago I had a lot of vacation time available to me, and I was trying to figure out how to plan for it. So I was, remember talking to my other boss, and, you know, I said, well, I'm thinking of taking this week off and then – you know, I guess the only way I'm going to get in all my vacation time, because I had a lot on the books, was I would take a week, like, it was like we were at July. So I only had like six months left, and I had seven weeks of vacation to take. And because I hadn't taken any for the year, and I was right. at seven weeks. Yeah. And so I said, I guess I'll take a week off every month, 
and then around Thanksgiving, I'll just take two weeks off. Well, I remember his response was, oh, but that, I, I just don't like you taking off such big chunks of time. He goes, can't you work it out where you, like, just start taking, like, every Friday off or something like that? <laughs> the guy is and, obviously math challenged. <laughs> and I just said to him, I went, no, that doesn't work for me, and I'll tell you why. I said, when I think of taking vacation, I think of it as an opportunity to take a true break from your job so that you can totally, you know, uh, disconnect and allow your entire being to refresh and get creatively refreshed. Well, he, he, he was willing to accept that as a valid point. And I said, but here's what I've learned about me. Even when we have three-day weekends because there's a holiday on Monday, I said, it doesn't work for me. I mean, yes, it was nice to have a third day off because I got a few more things done, but I said, for me, I've learned that it takes me almost four complete days away from my job for my brain to actually disconnect from it because I've been so entrenched and entrained in thinking about my job pretty much, like, not 24-7, and yet it is 24-7 because when I'm not physically in the job, it's hard to shut my brain off about the job. Sure. So yeah. I'm, I mean, I dream in spreadsheets. Now, I actually <laughs> asked my inner being to help me stop dreaming spreadsheets, and I will tell you, I think I've had a reprieve from that. Well, that's nice. But for years, I dreamed in spreadsheets and in Outlook calendaring. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's amazing how, like, my inner being would help to, you know, download whatever happened during my dream time into spreadsheets and Outlook calendaring. But that's... <laughs> just where I was. So, <laughs> I know I'm a crazy loon. I love so, it, though. Anyway, back to my vacation thing. I remember taking two weeks off because I wanted to experiment to see what would happen with my own natural energy cycle. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, four days, I was still thinking about my job, but it was getting a little less and a little less. Yep. And by day five, I started to feel what I considered was an internal sense of freedom. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know what to do. So I kind of did nothing for the next several days. I'd watch TV. I'd go outside. I'd pull in the trash cans. I'd get mail. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'd read some magazines. But it's like I wasn't doing anything that felt purposeful. But that was like the next part of my process, which is the doing nothing. Mm -hmm. Then when I did enough of nothing, I felt bored. Right. Then what happened, and by boredom, that boredom didn't hit till maybe day six, seven, or eight. Mm -hmm. Well, then by then, I'm like, I want to do something. Yes. Well, now I started inter interacting with my own thoughts. Well, what do I want to do? What would make me happy? And then I'd come up with something. And there were some times I would, like, declutter my house. I remember I'm an organizational neat freak, so for me that was fun. But I'd go top to bottom, and I'd clean drawers, and I'd – pull furniture out and vacuum up against the baseboards. That was fun for me. I know. I'm, I'm crazy. But that was a fun project. And when it was done, I felt so renewed. But you know what? If I only had a Friday off, that could never have happened. And now I've done this cycle over and over and over mm -hmm. where when I take vacation, it's a minimum of a week, a Monday through Friday, where it's blocked in by the weekend. So that's nine days. Right. So what that does for me is it gives me a minimum of five days of being creative. Which is great. And 
you know, sometimes it's still not long enough because usually at the end of oh, no. my, you know, it's like I really wished I had two weeks, but sure. I just don't think my company would be really happy if every time I took off, I took two week chunks off because <laughs> being an executive admin, I'm the only one who does what I do. Right, right. So it's hard for them to get along without me. Which, yeah. You know, that's a good thing and a bad thing. Right. But I've kind of come to understand when I want to do something that's out of the box, I just don't randomly go, okay, I'll just put a time slot on the calendar and say I'm going to do it. I have to look for big chunks of time where I can create this freedom, where I can then have this creativity, where then there's a vacuum of, well, what do I do because I'm bored for all this stuff to happen. So. As a result, I mean, I'm just sitting here going, oh, my God, what would it be like? I, can, I really can't imagine what it would have been like to have gone to the school that you're talking about that you helped put together where there was zero structure and I was just led by my internal being. Mm, it's quite a thing to think oh about, God. let me tell you. And by the way, what you were outlining there is precisely what happens with a new kid in Sudbury. Because, and this is one of the big fears that parents have, because the kid announces, well, I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to sit around and do nothing all day. And the kid, the parents say, oh, my God, this kid's going to be a delinquent. But what actively happens is that the kid goes into school and, sure enough, sits around and does nothing all day for a day, two days, three, maybe four, maybe five. And then he starts to get antsy because... You know, he's sticking to his word. I'm not going to do nothing. But he's starting to get interested and he started thinking about stuff. He's seen the other kids doing things and finally he just can't take it anymore and he starts running off to do something because he has to. He has to. It's built into him. He just can't. There's no way he can just sit there and do nothing all day. And, and actually, that doesn't even happen very often. What usually happens is you open the door and boom, they're off like a shot to do something. It, it, it doesn't take very long at all for most kids. But on a rare occasion, you do get some kid who's just determined he's going to show everybody he's not going to do nothing. It lasts a few days and then he's done. <laughs> you can't you know, do nothing when you're a kid. You've got to be doing stuff. That, and, and they invent stuff. The stuff they invent to do is absolutely mind-blowing in and of itself. Like, one of the great stories that came out of Sudbury Valley, the one that was founded in the late 1960s, was there was a, a group. They, they have, I can't think what they call them. I'll call them clubs, but they aren't really clubs. Uh, the kids will organize a club, and they'll, they'll raise money and so forth to, to you know, do the club. And there was this one club where they were uh, making a plasticine city. They were using plasticine material and making an entire city full of buildings and people and trees and shrubs and everything. I mean, a perfect to scale kind of a complete city that filled an entire room. I mean, and, and the detail level was extraordinary. They put tons and tons and tons of effort into making everything just perfect. So you had this beautiful plasticine city, and when they were done, they had a big war and destroyed the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> So, because you, they could. So, so, you know, you have your average uh, educational expert who's going to say, well, that was a complete waste of time. They didn't learn anything. They didn't. They, where, what did they actually get out of it? That didn't do anything to advance their careers. They're not going to have better lives out of it, which shows that the educator really doesn't have any clue what they're talking about because they learned about how to work together, how to cooperate, how to, how to plan something, how to execute the plan, and how to turn it into a success. But the educator was too then, stupid to notice that. And then how to have fun by blowing it up. And have fun, yeah. <laughs> and, and you know what I'm seeing, and there's not an attachment. 
That's right. When you can blow up your creation. Yeah. There's not an attachment. You can let go and be free. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. The stuff these kids learn. Plus, there's the stories of like the kids who learned how to do reading and math, and no one knew they could even do it. I mean, there's one kid. This is like a story from like the 1980s or so. This kid, every day, that Sudbury Valley is actually in a, a wonderful uh, school plant, so to speak. They have like six acres. It has a couple, one large building, a smaller building, and, and there are some other stuff that have been added since then. It used to be a nunnery, actually, and then it got sold to them, and they opened the school there um, after some passing through some other hands. So they opened the school, and the school, among other things, has a pond on the property and a little bridge that runs over it. And there was this one kid, every day, he would get his fishing gear together and go down to the pond and just go fishing all day long. He didn't interact with the other kids. He didn't do anything else. Every day, he went down to the pond and went fishing. And after the first year, the father came over to one of the, the top staff members and said, you know, my kid went fishing all last year. <laughs> I'm really concerned about this. I'm very, very concerned. And, and the, the guy says, uh, his name is Daniel, he says, uh, Look, this is, we know how this model works. You knew that going into it. And so the beginning of the school year, uh, or the end of the school year would, would come. He hadn't done anything. They'd go through the summer and come back to school the next year. And the father said, well, you know, two years in a row, he still hasn't done anything. All he does is go fishing every day. I'm really concerned about this. And Danny would say, no, you, you, this is the way the model works. You just have to trust that they're following their inner guidance. Well, after a few years of this, the kid comes up to one of the staff members one day out of the blue. I mean, nobody even knew he could hardly talk because he never talked to anybody. He comes up to a staff member and says, I want to learn how to use a computer. And the staff member says, well, okay, Um, you know you have to know how to read in order to use a computer. He says, oh, I know how to read. Well, when did you learn how to use, uh, when did you learn how to read? When I was fishing. Okay, well, another thing that's good to learn, because this was early computing, right? where you didn't have lots of programs. You had to do your own programming. Um, another thing you have to know is math. Math is really helpful if you're going to program your computer. Oh, I know how to do math. When did you learn how to do math? When I was fishing. To this day, no one knows how this kid learned how to do math or how to read. He did learn how to use a computer and later became an executive at Hewlett-Packard. Really? That pretty much wow. blows every educational, traditional educational theory about what it takes for a kid to learn how to read and how to do math right out of the water. Wow. I thought you were going to tell the story that somehow he had a fish empire. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think they were actually expecting that. They didn't expect him to learn how to do a computer, but that's what he wanted to do. <laughs> well, you know, not that this is exactly the same, but it kind of reminds me of this. Um, I had told you how I had had my three nieces over in November, and then they came back again in December around Christmas time. And each time they came and stayed with me for three days. And my nieces ranged from, let's see, 16, 19, and 22. And I just thought of them as my little nieces. You know, they don't live close by, so I haven't watched them in the developing process. I know they've been homeschooled. You know, I see all the stuff on Facebook about all the activities they're involved in, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But when they came and spent time with me, I concluded these three children are brilliant. Mm. They completely blew my mind. My fear for them years ago was they're being homeschooled, they're living on um, like a farm, 
and they're going to be isolated and oh these poor things I'm going to, you know their aunt Wendy is going to so have to jump in and help them in their adult lives <laughs> how stupid was I but these kids are brilliant so my little 16 year old niece okay she's not really little 16 year old but this 16 year old um I she happens to mention she's really good with HTML coding mm mm-hmm. mhm and I'm like, you're kidding. <laughs> I mean, I saw the picture of her on Facebook where she was picking up the eggs because they have chickens and they harvest eggs, and she was, you know, picking strawberries. Mm. So, you know, I'm thinking, like, remedial. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's so sad what my perception was. Yep. So I told her about this one thing that I was having a problem with on, on my website, and she goes, oh, well, show me what you need and, you know, let me get to it. And I'm like, okay. And, I mean, 45 minutes later... She had completely solved a problem that I had spent months working on. I had taken an HTML course, and I was still struggling. And I said, how do you know how to do this stuff? She goes, I don't know. I just do it. <laughs> yep. Okay. So works. now my 22-year-old niece, she works at Texas A&M um, in the vet department, and she does their IT hardware stuff, and she fixes everybody's problems. That's the job that she has. And I said, how did you learn this? She goes, I don't know. I just did it. (laughs) And her dad and her mom, you know, are saying, oh, yeah, anytime there's been a computer problem for as long as we can remember, we just would ask her, and she would go, okay, I'll figure it out. Yeah. So at my house, I have a PC and a laptop, and I said I had some issues with both. And I said, do you mind looking at them? She goes, no, I'll look at them. So I said, how do you know how to do this? She goes, I Google. And I watched her. And literally, every time she came up against, she tried something and it didn't work, she would Google something else that would give her a new idea, and she'd go back and try it until it was resolved. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's freaking brilliant. Yeah. And so, you know, I I mean, I, I understand the concept you're talking about. And, I mean, they had a little bit more structure than the Sudbury School because they did have homeschooling and there was a curriculum. But it was all on their own timetable, and like my nephew should have already graduated high school according to the timetable, and he he just hasn't. <laughs> and, you know, I've asked his mom, I'm like, and is that an issue? She goes, he'll get to it when he gets to it. She goes, would I like to have him be done already? Yes. But she, goes, she says, I can't make him study. I can't make him do it. I mean, could she? Probably. But that's just not the kind of parenting that she wants to do. And I, when he was here, I said, well, do you think you're going to graduate anytime soon? He went, yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> but what I will tell you is when he was 11 years old, he was working under cars with my brother because my brother does mechanical work. Mm-hmm. And he could, like, completely disassemble and put together a brand-new engine at, like, 11, 12, year, 12 years old. Sure. And I'm like, how do they do that? And he goes, I don't know. I just watch Dad. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, my God. So it never even dawned on me until now while you're talking about the school how I, I really kind of watched my nieces and nephew go through something very similar sure. without realizing they were going through something similar. Where they did it on their own timetable. And, and by the way, it sounds like your, your niece's nephew uh, went through what I would call homeschooling light. There's also another form of homeschooling called unschooling. And unschooling is basically the Sudbury model done at home. 
but that's also a relatively popular mm. homeschooling model. So I just thought I'd mention that one too. But yeah, I well, mean, I mean you when think it came about to it. extracurricular activities, I was blown, I mean, I truly was worried for them that they would be isolated out on their 11 acre farm. There were no other kids in their neighborhood. It was all adults and agricultural, you know, animals. And I'm like, how are they going to interact? How are they going to socialize? Oh my God, these four kids are so complete completely socialized mm-hmm. there were there's so many different things i mean they learned ballroom dancing <laughs> they did rotc yeah. um that's how my niece learned photography she took a photography class and went gee i really like this mm-hmm. next thing you know now she's 19 and this is her career ah. and she's fabulous yeah but yeah. they just all did a bunch of stuff and i'd ask my my sister i'm like where'd you come up with this she goes well, there's all these groups that, you know, homeschoolers, like, work, we, we communicate, we network, oh, yeah. and we learn about different stuff, and, uh, oh, you the, know, we throw them, the homeschool see what they network. like to do. The whole homeschool network across the country is massive and very well organized, and y- you can tap into almost any level of homeschooling that you want to if you're truly interested in pursuing this kind of thing, so I have no doubt they have a very large network they're connected to, and, and, it, yeah, and, and my, that's, that's very important. And Here's the the thing that I think is wild. My 22-year-old niece, um, ever since, I don't know, she was probably in her mid-teens, she's been very Internet-oriented and very, I don't even know what chat rooms or how she's met people. Mm -hmm. But from her own desire, because she met somebody, um, a girlfriend who was from Germany, um, my niece learned how to speak German. Mm -hmm. So she could communicate with her German friend online. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, Really? How do you do this? <laughs> she goes, I don't know. I just wanted to learn. You know, for those of us who, who went through the public school model, because we didn't know anything different, we don't really realize just how much we were held back. We were held back a lot by that model. We were yeah, prevented from realize. tapping into our own internal being for, for guidance. We were mm-hmm. discouraged from developing the skills we needed in order to develop our self-confidence. We were discouraged to learn how to trust our ability to pick what it is we needed to work on next. Hmm. That's why we came out of school with most of us not having a clue what we wanted to do with our lives. The, the, the Sudbury oh. model is, isn't actually a miracle. The, the unschooling model, even the homeschooling models, they aren't actually miracles. What we really have here is something that has set up a tremendous negative cycle of the public school system, the traditional school system. And it's a system maybe that you is, and, is maybe starting you to fall and apart. Maybe you are the miracles because we made well, we are. the public school system. Yeah, be, 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 well, we got through it. And I don't know about you, I learned very quickly that I had to unlearn most of what I learned. And so I spent most of my 20s and, and 30s just trying to learn what I realized I should have been learning, that I hadn't mm-hmm. been taught. And I felt cheated, but I said, you know what, to heck with that. I'm just going to go learn it. I'm going to learn the stuff I need to learn. And if if it hadn't been for that attitude in mind, I doubt that I would have found the law of attraction. I really think that's part of what guided me here because I realized what I was taught didn't add up. So it had to be something else. Either that or else the universe was insane, which I did entertain for a while. <laughs> I, I did entertain that idea for a while that the universe was insane. But there were, there were too many things that were sane, so I said, well, no, that can't be it. <laughs> so it's got to be something else. <laughs> Well, I do know that when I was like 12 or 13 and I was in um, home ec, I learned how to sew. Mm -hmm. 
And that was really exciting to me. Sure. And so my best friend's mother also sewed, so I asked her to help me because my mom didn't. And so I started sewing, and then mom would, you know, give me some money so I could go buy fabric and patterns, and then I started altering patterns and just playing with them. And that led to a huge desire to learn how to do more. Mm. And so I really wanted to go to college to learn. At the time, fashion design was kind of the curriculum really wanted to learn how to sew and make patterns. That mm-hmm. was what was exciting to me. Right. But I know I've told you on this show that I had a high school guidance counselor yeah. that told me it was a bad idea. Yeah. And his biggest reason was because because I was a straight-A student and graduated at the top of my class, he felt I wouldn't be challenged because this particular school only required students with a C average to attend. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm like, but even I was saying, I mean, here I was, 16 years old, going, yeah, but Mr. Guidance Counselor, that doesn't make sense, because what does sewing and pattern making have to do with academics? Yep. And he said, oh, I don't think you'll be happy there. <laughs> oh, dear. i got to tell you, this was a not an, I mean, I went through the two-year program. It was not easy, because it wasn't using academics. That's where my natural skill set was. Right. Now, it was easy in that I loved doing what I was doing. But I had to work really hard at it. But I loved it, and I was thrilled to come out of, you know, the schooling with that education, and I used it, you know. But that was, like, for my own personal development, which eventually I did use as a career also. But, you know, I guess in a way that was my own natural instinct leading me toward what made me happy. But now that I think about it in these terms, I was really guided away from it. Yeah, basically, you were following your own Sudbury experiment. You were you were doing your own Sudbury school. You didn't know what it was called, but that's essentially right. what you were doing. That what you did is exactly what Sudbury students do. They follow mm-hmm. their heart. They follow their nose. They follow their interests. And if something's not interesting, they move on to the next thing. They just keep moving on until they find something that in, is interesting. And then, like you said, it's total immersion. They just dive right in and they learn everything about it. That's wow. the way education should work. That's the way education does work best. So it's a fabulous model. And for those of us who have wondered what would happen if we were to actually teach law of attraction, trusting your inner being, if we were to teach this stuff to the schools, what would happen? Well, we already know because it has inadvertently been taught in these alternative schools, and the results are just plain phenomenal. So it's encouraging. That's the good part. It's very encouraging. It shows just how much potential we can unleash if we just you know, take the reins off. <laughs> You know, um, a girlfriend had introduced a Law of Attraction audio cassette, which was Abraham Hicks, to me in, I think, 2001 or 2002. And over the course of time, she gave me about 15 different cassette tapes. And I thought they were all really interesting because I'd always been involved in personal development. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was kind of like the the spigot stopped. She was getting them. They were bootleg copies from a client of hers, and she was bootlegging them to me. And then after a while, she wasn't seeing that client, so we didn't get any more. And I didn't really understand how to make this thing work that I was learning about. So I just kind of dropped it, and I went on to other things. And then it was probably in about 2007, I was at a point in my life, I was deeply searching for something more. I knew that on a spiritual, on a personal level, there was more for me, and what I had learned thus far in other personal development venues wasn't yet enough. 
And I'm like, I don't want to look for stuff like I already have. There's some, There's got to be something different. And literally, it came to me, and I believe the law of attraction, like, put the, put the thought there. Go look for those people. Didn't know who they were, but who were those people that I got those cassettes from? And I just found enough key words as I would Google that I eventually landed on the Abraham Hicks Law of Attraction site. And I just looked at it, and I went, oh, they've got, they've got this program where you can get the unedited versions of all of their workshops. I'm like, okay, that sounded good to me. So I called on the phone, and thank God, they actually use telephones. They still do. I was able to call on the phone. I didn't even have to navigate the Internet. And I just said, how do I sign up? That's great. And I got signed up. I started listening to these cassettes. were or Not cassettes. Now they were CDs. They were coming fast and furious. And talk about immersion. I immersed myself so deeply in studying Law of Attraction through Abraham Hicks. That's how I became, that's how I've mastered many of the principles. But it wasn't just because someone told me to. It was an inner drive. Yes. It was like I couldn't get enough of it. And like I've told you, I would listen to each CD three times before I moved on to the next one. And I'd listen to the next one, and I'd listen three times before I moved on to the next I one. I remember you told and me. And I've got hundreds of these CDs. <laughs> I'm still and, amazed. you know, my friends are like, really, don't you listen to anything else, music? And Nope. Nothing else was interesting to me. I couldn't get enough of it. Now, to me, that's where I was being pulled by something inside of me. Sure. And I love immersion. Yeah. Now, I don't listen to nearly as many of those CDs as I did before. Well, you got out I'm of not what you wanted. Them. You, need, you, need, you didn't need them anymore. You, you finished, so you moved on. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I still I still subscribe to a program, but now I get two CDs a month, mm -hmm. where before I was getting probably up to fifteen a month. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. But you know, I, I totally get it. When you have a desire to do something, it's like you can't you can't do anything except learn it, and that's kind of how I I am an avid learner. When I want to learn something, by God, I'm going to learn it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And that's where self-confidence comes from, by the way. Self-confidence comes from following your own nose and learning that you can trust following your own nose and doing it mm -hmm. over and over and over again. The more you do that, the more confident you become. That's the one thing that strikes you most when you go into a subway school, just how confident the kids are. I mean, wow. no fear, just no fear. Even the most shy kids just open right up. They just learn to because of the, the sociability of, of the environment, if nothing else. So it's, how many of these schools are there across the United States, do you know? There aren't a lot of them. I, I don't know what the exact count is right now. I haven't checked in many years. I would say you're probably looking at somewhere around 30 schools, so it's not a lot. And they're usually very wow. small. The Sudbury Valley School is definitely the biggest one. There are a couple others that have a couple hundred kids, but most of them are really, really small. The one we founded had, you know, I think we started with like 12 kids and it grew to like 25 at its peak, you know, so not really big at all. But yeah. This, anyway, this has been an absolutely amazing topic. Yeah, absolutely amazing. I've loved it. I'm so glad you 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 know. Well, we were as we were bouncing ideas around. I'm glad you mentioned it because I said, yeah, I definitely want to know more about this. Well, well we so, can always talk about more of it in the future. Unfortunately, we're out of time today, so we can't do that anymore. But uh, I do want to mention subscribe if you haven't done it. I can't tell you how to do it. If you want to find out how, you have to go listen to another recording because we're out of time for this one. Wendy, how does somebody reach you if they need some uh, coaching help? 
wendydillard.com. That does it nice and easy. Wendy, it's been a pleasure. Let's do it again tomorrow. You got it. I'll be here. All right, I will too. We hope you're here as well with us here on LOA Today. Goodbye, everybody. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.